on um, January 12th of this year, 2016. It was a Monday morning, and I strolled into my office rather early that particular morning to begin an eager week of work, only to be interrupted a few hours later with my dad sitting across uh, my desk from me explaining to me something that I was not quite prepared to hear. He was explaining to me that my grandmother was passing away and would not make it. Definitely would not make it. And as many of you know, because I've shared this story with you before, that was um, shocking to me. It was earth-shaking to me. And it was definitely one of the several things that led me to relapse into depression this last year. Reason being because uh, aside from my wife, my grandmother was one of, if not the closest person I, I was to in, in my life. And I had most certainly never had anyone uh, pass away that I was that close to before. And I, I remember the um, unique experience of that morning we had, in my estimation, had a great Lord's Day the previous day. Uh, great morning service, great evening service, great time of fellowship that Sunday to the point that I was re-energized and rejuvenated to begin and eager to begin a new uh, work week for the church and prepare for the next week. And it was so odd to experience such a great Lord's Day and then in less than 24 hours experience that moment where... You lose someone you love, someone uh, who is dear to you. <clears throat> and it was a surprise to our family. You know that as well, some of you. My grandmother was in great health and in a span of 15 hours passed away, uh, totally un unaware of anything. Um, in fact, they, they don't know what caused all the things to happen. Her body just got so frail and weak to that point to where she went to be with the Lord and... Um, some of you have shared this before. You know this in your own life. It's, you're never ready. You're not prepared. And so my dad leaves my office that morning to go back to the hospital and to be with my sister and the rest of the family. And I was found alone again with God. And there was only one thing I could do in that moment. And it was almost instinct, incredibly natural, and almost immediate all I could do was stop and thank God for salvation. The grief was real. The sorrow was real. And the, the pain even was real. But I've learned that the grief was not for my grandmother. The grief was for me missing her. The grief was for us who remained here in this life. I, I did not grieve where she was at. I did not grieve that she was in pain or in misery or anything like that. I grieved not being able to interact with her on this side of heaven. And so the grief, as some of you know, was, is mixed for us as believers. It's mixed with thankfulness, isn't it? When we lose a loved one who belongs to Christ, it's real grief, but it's mixed with joy. And it's mixed with peace. And it has somehow within it a spark of hope, doesn't it? That's what happens when believers die. And so I think back to my grandmother in that Monday morning so vividly. 
and everything I knew about God flooded out of my heart. God, I'm thankful that you forgive us of our sins, that you save us, and you take us home to be with you in a heavenly rest. And I'm thankful, God, for you taking care of my grandmother. As one of our own has passed away this last couple of days, I've spent about the last 24 hours praying through and thinking through um, what I felt God leading me to do this morning. I felt uh, commended to look at, specifically this morning, what the Bible teaches about the believer's death. The reason is because the Bible is sufficient for us, isn't it? And it speaks to us in all areas of life, especially in this area of life. And I want to focus primarily, specifically on the grace of Christ in a believer's death. And I want us to be reminded and I want us to be refreshed and even encouraged by the great grace lavished upon us by our God in that moment of passing from this life to the next. As as Moretta put it, as we graduate to heaven. What does God do for us in that time? What does Christ, what does God's word say about that moment? Because it's inevitable, isn't it? Every moment, every minute, you and I are progressing towards death. Unless Christ comes back, we will all end in that way. It's, it's an ever-present fact. We all look at it in the face every day. The human race is pretty frail and fragile. And death is surprising, it's sudden, and like we said, we're never quite prepared for it, but nevertheless, it is inevitable. So how, as Christians, how are we to respond to it? How are we to view it? How can we even embrace it and find joy and encouragement in it? Because, as we will see this morning, we will, as believers, find great encouragement in it. So we'll pick up back in Luke chapter 5 next week. But for this week, if you will indulge with me, turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And I'll be honest with you, this is somewhat uncomfortable for me. You guys that know me pretty well know that I'm particular and I like to spend as much time studying a passage as I can before I present it and 24 hours is not always a a sufficient amount of time for me. So my goal simply is to walk us through 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and bring out some of my thoughts and some of my observations as simple as they may be solely for the goal that you would just be reminded and maybe increase in your adoration for Christ, seeing and remembering the grace that He shows us as we pass, as one of our loved ones pass, as one of our church family passes, we would be encouraged by how God deals with us in that moment. First, let me remind you of a passage in Colossians chapter 3, verse 1. Paul's writing to those believers and he tells them, If then you have been raised with Christ, if you are a Christian, then seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. 
When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. As believers and as Christians, we are to always have an ever-present mind of heaven. We're supposed to have a heavenly perspective on this life. To remember that we are sojourners passing through a strange land, going to our far better country, our home with Christ. Paul even says that in Philippians chapter 3. We are citizens of a different kind of land. Different kind of place. And so as believers, our heart must always be fixed towards heaven. In fact, we view everything in this life through the lens of heaven. How we interact with each other. How we worship God. How we live our lives and prepare for the future. Everything, and most certainly death, is viewed through the lens of heaven. Isn't it? I want to read to you some questions that a man wrote named Richard Baxter. He was a pastor, a Puritan pastor in the 1600s. And he writes this little pamphlet entitled The Saints Everlasting Rest. And in the very first chapter, he begins by asking a series of questions about heaven. And I just want to read a few of them to you. He says, is a heavenly rest even available to us? Why then are our thoughts no more upon it? Why are not our hearts continually there? Has the eternal God provided such a glory and promised to take us up to dwell with Himself? And is this not worth thinking on? Should not the strongest desires of our hearts be after it? Do we believe this and yet forget and neglect it? And he goes on and on and on to stress the importance there of heaven and why do we not fix our minds upon heaven as we ought. J.I. Packer writes another book about the Puritans called The Quest for Godliness. And in the introduction of that book, he shares the same mentality that Richard Baxter has. And he says all Puritans had this mentality of focusing on heaven. He said because they knew, as he described it, the transitoriness of this life. They knew that the human life was only a breath. And Packer explains in his book that the Puritans especially knew this because they did not live long lives. Most men and women in their time died in their 30s, 40s, 50s, and if they were blessed, may make it to their 60th birthday. But they did not have medicines and the modern luxuries that we do, and so they knew that this life is temporary and they are passing through and as such, they had a Godward, heavenly focus. They set their minds on things above. I share this with you to say that we are to have this mentality as we live this life because this interprets everything of what we know about our Christian faith. And it interprets everything we know about our outlook on death. In fact, I would even maintain we cannot have an adequate view of heaven until we know and understand death. And once we know and understand death, we'll have a, a longing for heaven. And once we have a longing for heaven, we do not fear death as believers. In fact, we see it as a friend, as a gateway to pass to the glorious shores of heaven. And so, I want to turn your attention this morning to the grace of Christ extended to a believer in the moment of death. And I want to do so with 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the majority of the chapter, as we'll briefly run through it in the next few minutes. 
Paul has written a rather lengthy and even for him a toilsome letter to this church in Corinth. He's been trying to correct some things in their church. He's been trying to teach them some things. And he wants to end his letter to them with the last point being about death and their future after death. We need to remember in Paul's mentality, we need to remember where we're going and how we're going to get there. We need to remember the grand scheme of all this that I'm teaching you, preparing you for glory with Christ. And so anytime we talk about death or talk about heaven or talk about our future, we must come to 1 Corinthians 15. It is a foundational passage and it's primarily dealing with the resurrection of Christ. Paul begins in verse 1 by calling these believers in Corinth to remember the gospel. I want you to remember the gospel that I preached to you. Hold that in your heart and hold that in your mind. And then in verse 3, he's going to explain the gospel to them. I deliver to you, he says, as of first importance, utmost importance, the greatest thing that I can give to you. I deliver to you as of first importance what I also myself received. Namely, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. That's the heart of the Gospel. That Jesus Christ took upon Himself our sins. If we're going to know anything about our heavenly focus, if we're going to know anything about the grace of Christ for a believer in the moment of death, we learn this first. Christ has forgiven us and cleansed us of our sins. So that Psalm 103, God does not deal with us according to our sins in Christ. He deals with us according to His grace. Verse 4, Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. Verse 4, that He was buried. He, he literally died. And then, the point of Paul's chapter here, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. The resurrection of Christ is the foundation for the believer's eternity. It's the hope and it is the key to our future with Christ. If Christ dying on the cross for our sins is the center of the Gospel, the resurrection is the foundation for our future, our death, our eternity. And that's what Paul is going to emphasize. That's where his focus turns to trying to stress to these Corinthian believers, how important it is that Christ has been resurrected for us. And what that actually means for our future. Church, let me tell you, before we get to the rest of this passage, it means absolutely everything. Skip down to verse 14. Paul highlights in verses 12 and 13 that some people doubt the resurrection, even teach that there is no resurrection. And so he's going to stress the importance of it in verse 14. He says, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. If Christ hasn't resurrected from the dead, we have nothing. We have no faith. We have no hope. We have no future. Your faith is worthless. Meaningless. And in fact, our, our preaching's in vain, he says. What we do with our lives, our livelihood is worthless. It's useless. It has no point to it if Christ isn't raised. 
Verse 15, we are even found to be misrepresenting God if Christ isn't raised. Because we testified about God that He did raise Christ, whom He did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. We're even found to be liars if Christ isn't resurrected. Not only is our, our preaching in vain, we're misrepresenting God if it's not true. Verse 16, for if the dead are not raised, then not even Christ has been raised. Verse 17, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. If Christ has not been raised, you have nothing, no salvation, no hope, no eternal glory with God. You're still in your sins. You'd ask, why does the Resurrection have hinged upon it our deliverance from sins because the resurrection is the picture that Christ has victory over sin, Satan, and death. When He raises from the dead, death no longer has dominion over Him. And the resurrection is also the sign of God's approval that His sacrifice on the cross was sufficient. It was enough to forgive us. If Christ did not raise, then the cross was not enough and we are still in our sins and our faith is futile. But Christ has risen, hasn't He? And our faith is not futile. And we are not still in our sins. Christ did have victory. The cross was enough. Paul's stressing this point that if if Christ does not resurrect and if He does not take care of our future after death, after we leave this temporary world, then we certainly have nothing. Look what he says in verse 18. If, if we're still in our sins, then those who have fallen asleep, those who have died in Christ, have, have perished. There's nothing. If Christ isn't resurrected, there's nothing for those who die. And then verse 19, perhaps the most popular verse from this chapter if in, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. If we have no hope for the future, if we have no hope for life after death with Christ, if we have benefit in this worldly temporary life only, Paul says of all the people in the world, we are the most to be pitied. We are fools. But, verse 20, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. So all the implications of these previous verses aren't true. Our faith is not in vain. Our preaching is not in vain. Our faith is not futile. We're not still in our sins. Those who have fallen asleep in Christ have not simply just perished. And we are not without hope and of all people most to be pitied. We are the children of God, the living God. And verse 20, not only has He been raised, but He is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. You understand what that means, don't you? Our Lord Jesus has gone through the veil of death for us and before us to lead us through it Himself. It is Christ who meets the believer in the moment of death and carries the believer to the shores of heaven. He is the first one to enter death for us, to bring us through to eternity, and He will bring us through faithfully every time. Do you see the grace of God here for the believer? Oh, do not fear death, Christian. 
For you will walk hand in hand with the Savior into the land of glory. Verse 21, For as by a man came death, by man has also come the resurrection of the dead. If Christ has been raised, we shall be raised. Verse 22, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. And church, here it is. The ultimate point. The ultimate difference between the believer's death and the unbeliever's death. Life in Christ. All those who are in Christ shall be made alive. This mortal body may fall off. It may grow weak and weary and we may leave it behind. But we find life in Christ in the moment of death. This is what separates the believer's death from the rest of the world. This is why we can face death with hope and certainty and faith and joy. And this is why we can even at times in our lives, rightly so, long for death to be home with Christ. Because in Him we have life. I hope you're thinking of this passage. If not, you will in the future. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13, Paul writes and says, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who have died. So that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. We do not grieve as Christians. We do not grieve as those with no hope, do we? We may and we do view death differently. And that doesn't diminish grief, does it? Paul says in that verse, we will grieve. We just don't grieve as those without any hope. We don't grieve as those who have not known the Lord. We have hope. We have hope in Christ and hope in the, in the resurrection. We know from Scripture and from the love of God and the grace of Christ extended to us that because of His resurrection, He will raise us too. We will have life with Him. So we may grieve, yes, that's good and right and, and healthy, but we don't grieve as those with no hope. We grieve with thankfulness and gratitude and peace and joy and rest and even eagerness. That's the first grace that we see of Christ pouring into the life of the believer. That death is temporary. Death is as temporary as this life in this world is temporary. Because for the believer, death is only a moment and we are made alive again with Christ. And we live forever with Christ. Death for the Christian is temporary. Well, Paul now moves to the crescendo of his passage here. Verse uh, 35, he anticipates the questions that people are going to ask him. How are the dead going to be raised? What, what kind of body are they going to have? What's that new life going to be like? And he says in verse 36, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies, right? And we can think of wheat. This is kind of our area of expertise out here in Oklahoma we think of wheat and seed and wheat does not fall to the ground until the wheat dies as long as the wheat is alive it remains intact and Paul's going to use that illustration in the next couple of verses to communicate the same truth about 
the body. In fact, he even uses wheat as an example. Verse 37, what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body, body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. He says then that not all flesh is the same. There's flesh of humans and animals and birds and fish. And then he says, and it's the same with heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. There's the glory of the heavenly, it's of one kind, and the glory of the earthly, it's another. It's just like the glory of the sun is different from the glory of the moon and stars and so on and so forth. And he comes down to verse 42 and he says, so it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable, what is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory, it is sown in weakness, it is raised in power body is a mere kernel and one day we'll shed it to a greater life and a greater glory we come down to verse 44 and I, I think verse 44 through verse 58 is really his punch of the passage verse 44 he says talking about the body the person it is sown a natural body it is raised a spiritual body if there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. We learn first how the human being is made up here in this passage. A person is made of body and soul. Body and spirit. And while the body may be left behind, the spirit is made alive. And goes to be with Christ. Verse 45, thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being, the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. He quotes from Genesis chapter 2 where God breathed into the nostrils of Adam and made him a living creature. He became living, but Christ, the last Adam, gives life. And so here it is how we face death with confidence and with joy and, and with peace. It's our Savior. It's not the work of ourselves and it's not the trust in ourselves. It's the trust in the goodness of our God. That He gives life. And so the natural body may be left behind. The natural body may stay here and even return to dust. But the Spirit is made alive in Christ. Together with God. By the life-giving Spirit of the last Adam. Jesus came, church, to succeed where the first Adam failed. Verse 46, but it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven understands something there of what happens to the believer in death. We take off this natural body and we now bear the image of Christ. The image of the man of heaven. Our citizenship is revealed. The promised glory and the promised inheritance that Christ gives to His children is made real. We bear the image of the man of heaven. 
and death, church. We are made like Christ. And in that moment, we're clothed in righteousness, aren't we? Clothed in holiness. We may take off the natural body, but we are wrapped in purity. And we're wrapped in glory, aren't we? We ask that question, what, what do we know about the image of the man of heaven? We know that he was made perfect. He was made glorious. He was made pure. And so it shall be with us. Perfect, glorious, and pure. Every sin that has ruined our lives and every battle that we face from birth to death is instantly removed. Instantly dealt with. And we are instantly united to Christ. Bearing His image. Church, we're not left alone in death. We are embraced in death. So that even the believer would look to death and say, that is my gateway. And I embrace it as a friend. I embrace it as an eager chariot to carry me to the land of my king. So Paul will write in verse 50, I tell you this, brothers, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Let's highlight a few things here first. Notice first what it is that we inherit. It's the kingdom of God. That's where we go. That's where we belong. That is our country. That is our home. And that is what is given to us by a loving and gracious God. It's a place of peace, isn't it? No more battle, no more war, no more turmoil. It's a place of perfection. There's no more corruption. It's a place of love. Love for each other and love that flows from God Himself. It's a place of unity. It's a place of harmony. It's a place of the goodness of God in great abundance. This kingdom that we inherit is a place where the rule of God and the holiness of God is the rule of the land. And evil has no foothold. Scripture says it's a place of unimaginable glory. The very country of joy and happiness. That is what is given to us by God. That is what we are to inherit. That is our dwelling place as believers. That is our final home. Second, we need to notice from verse 50 that it's not the flesh and blood that inherit the kingdom. It's the imperishable that inherit the kingdom. The perishable parts of us as human beings, the body, the flesh and blood will not go to this kingdom. Whether we die or whether Christ comes back, as Paul's going to say in a moment, we're going to be changed. And so death is seen now as something that allows us to get to the kingdom as we are made imperishable. As we shed the flesh and blood and enter into this great inheritance. In fact, look at verse 51. He says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. We're not all going to die. Christ will come back. But we will all be changed. In a moment. In the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable. And we shall be changed. 
For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. We may not all taste death if Christ comes back in our life, and hopefully He does, but we will almost certainly be changed. The old self, the flesh, the weakness will be shed, will be left behind. The corruptions of our bodies, the the frailty of our body, the diseases of our body will be left behind and we enter into this holy kingdom of God where He rules and Scripture says that He wipes away every tear. He takes away all sickness. He takes away all pain. He takes away all evil. He guards us and protects us Himself. So that everything we suffer in this fleshly body is left behind. We will be changed to resemble the image of the man of heaven. Every struggle that you and I share in this life, every, every problem that comes with being a sinful human being in God's creation is wiped away for eternity. And death is no more. Those perishable things, all that is perishable about us, ceases. And we are made immortal in Christ. And just a side note, that immortality is secured for eternity. For if immortality can be taken away, it is not immortality. If eternal life can be taken away, it's not eternal. We are made eternally immortal with Christ. Verse 54, when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory, O death. Where is your victory, O death? Where is your sting, church? This is the banner cry of the believers. What are you going to do to us, death? We're not afraid of you. In fact, you're our ticket home. You're our gate to Christ. Where is your sting? Where is your victory? You have no victory. It's swallowed up in the victory of Christ. Verse 57. So Paul can close to the Corinthian believers saying this. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. For the believer who faces death, we say, thanks be to God, I have the victory in Christ. I will be with Him forever. I will rest with Him in eternity. I will be made immortal. The perishable will be left behind. No more death, no more pain, no more sickness, no more turmoil, none of those things. I will live in harmony and unity with my Lord and my Savior. Christ, who resurrected from the dead, will resurrect me from the dead. And I will pass through that temporary veil of death to be eternally united with Him. That's the death we face as believers. We view it so differently from the rest of the world, right? We view it so differently from unbelievers. And while we may grieve and may have sorrow, we can also celebrate the grace of Christ extended to us. But God does not leave us alone in death. Takes us by the hand, church. Takes us by the hand. 
What's the application of this? Well, Paul tells us, verse 58, Therefore, my beloved brothers, in light of all of this, in light of what it means that Christ is resurrected, in light of the fact that we will all be changed and united with Him and made immortal and the perishable will leave, in light of all of that, be steadfast. Be immovable. Be always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. If Christ be not raised from the dead, our preaching is in vain and our faith is in vain. But Christ has been raised from the dead, so know that your work for the Lord is not in vain. When we view our eternal home, when we have a heavenly focus like the Puritans did, and like Paul tells us in Colossians 3, when we understand the truth about death, the grace of Christ extended to the believer in death, and when we understand our eternal glory with Him, then we can be steadfast and immovable in this life. For what can this life do to us? Martyrdom becomes a welcomed gift. Death does not have a sting to us anymore. It has no bearing on us other than getting to go home. So as we live this life and as we serve and as we face persecution and as we uphold the truth of God in a world that hates the truth of God, we can be steadfast, we can be faithful, we can stand strong, we can unite together, arm in arm, striving side by side together for the faith of the Gospel, as Paul says in Philippians 1. We can be immovable, standing upon the rock that never moves. Standing as iron stands. And we can always be abounding in the work of the Lord. Always serving Him. Always longing for Him. Always doing the work of our gracious Master. Because that work is never done in vain. We can share the Gospel. We can talk about death. We can tell people what it means for believers to die. And know that that labor is not in vain. We have an eternal home waiting for us. What's your response to this? What's your response to the understanding of the grace of Christ and death and His resurrection extended to us? Well, for a believer, your response should be immense gratitude and great adoration. For God who not only forgives us of our sins, but prepares a place for us. Let me read you a few passages. John chapter 14. Jesus says this, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God and believe also in Me. In My Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to Myself, that where I am you may be also. 1 Peter chapter 1. Peter talks about this inheritance we have. And in verse 3, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you 
who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Through the resurrection of Christ, we have an inheritance imperishable, undefiled, unfading. This is what our God graciously does for us, church. It extends far beyond forgiving us of our sins, doesn't it? He lavishes His goodness and His graces upon us. I will wipe away your sins. I will cleanse you for eternity. And then I'll give you everything good of me. I'll give you a place. I'll prepare it for you. And I'll come and get it. Come and get you for it. And, and I'll bring you to myself so that where I am, you can be. It's an inheritance that's imperishable. It's not going to be defiled and it's not ever going to fade or wear out. It's going to be a perfect place where you and I can fellowship together. That is what our God promises us on the other side of death. So what's the response for a passage like this? The response is for a believer, adoration, thankfulness, gratitude, and praise to God for the salvation that He gives to humanity through Christ for the salvation that He gives us personally, for the home that He prepares for us, that we can face humanity's worst enemy in death and be the victor in Him. But if you're an unbeliever here this morning and you know you're here, your response should be to realize that this future is only reserved for those who have salvation in Christ. Unbelievers are just like the man of dust and they return to dust and they do not have this perfect inheritance in the kingdom of God. This means that you can and need to and should turn to Christ in faith for salvation. For unbelievers cannot face death in this way. Unbelievers must face death with fear and uncertainty and judgment. But anyone and everyone can turn to Christ for salvation, be forgiven of their sins, and be secured a place in this kingdom of God, in this inheritance. So your response is adoration or repentance. Adoration or seeking salvation in Christ. And I pray God's Spirit works upon us in those two ways that church, we could thank the Lord that when one of our family members in this church family graduates to heaven, we can celebrate together in that. And I also pray the Spirit's convicting your heart, unbeliever, to turn to Him in faith so that you can have this future secured by Him. God, we thank You so very much and so desperately for Your Word. It means so much more than we can express, God. We thank You for our salvation. We thank You for our eternal home in You. We thank You for the grace that You just continue, continue, continue to lavish upon us. You regenerate our hearts. You call us to You though we're rebellious sinners. You forgive us of our sins. You wipe away the filth that's in our heart. You secure a a place for us. You walk us through death. You bring us to our heavenly home with You. You help us to shed the natural perishable body and put on the imperishable, God. You 
change us to resemble You, to be in heaven with You. You remove all the pain that we experience and You give us a place of perfection and glory. Oh God, Your goodness is unmatched. Father, may we grieve. But may we grieve with hope and may we grieve with thankfulness and may we grieve with joy and gratitude to You. May we grieve in the grace that You provide. And may the unbelievers turn to You for this life. For salvation in You. And their place in heaven in eternity. Work among us, O God, and we thank You again for Your great love extended towards us in Christ. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.